The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste to all of you and welcome. Please settle down. We have the joy of being reunited tonight and being reunited with Sahajananda. And um, it was our desire ever since last season to start the season, to have in this season a meeting where we should be together and be able to answer to your questions and talk about the pathways, talk about the spiritual paths which we are offering in this school. In Agama Yoga we have a privileged situation and it is something which we actually wished for for a long time. We have a privileged situation because in the regular ashrams, in the regular yoga schools, there was usually one person who was the spiritual guide and who could guide seekers on the path. But uh, in Agama Yoga, we became reunited, Sahajananda and I. So we have a special, a wonderful circumstance where there are two persons that are authorized to guide spiritually through their understanding, through their realization. And uh, this makes the spectrum which our school offers so much more rich, so much more abundant. If our beloved Sahajananda teaches so much in a style which brings the teaching to you close to the style of Ramana Maharishi perhaps, or this path of the heart, this self-inquiry with all the specificities which he has brought into it. And if I'm sometimes teaching things for you in a style which is perhaps more looking like that of Swami Shivananda or maybe Swami Satyananda with the teachings of things, with the teachings of tantric things, with chakras and nadis and all that technology of tantra, this automatically is an amazing thing and this was what made me happy years ago when we got reunited because we had such a wide spectrum of teachings and it is a well-known thing that generally disciples in spirituality they usually get attached to a teacher with whom they fit more in temperament, in, in the way in which the teaching is given, in style. And it is a very well-known thing that there has been no teacher in this world until now, from Rumi and Shivananda and finishing with the divine avatars like Krishna or Jesus, who has ever managed to please everybody or who has ever been able to be uh, understood by everybody. And um, as we know since a lifetime almost, 
Sahajananda and I, we are very different in temperament, while at the same time we have some very common features, very similar features. And uh, this was such a good opportunity, which some of you in this school know, that actually some of the pupils fit more with my temperament and style. Some of the pupils of the school feel much more the temperament and style of Sahajananda. And um, I, for one, am sure that some of the pupils stay in the school, stay with the school, deepen their practice in the school, either because of my presence or because of the presence of Sahajananda in the school. And I'm sure that we managed to be complementary. Actually, once we made this great step forward that we, through the friendship that we have, we managed to be harmonized with each other spiritually, I really hope that in time there will emerge from our advanced pupils and from the others, there will emerge other great teachers with a great vocation, with a great gift from the divine, so that this school indeed can give even more and show the universality of the spirit, show the, this broad spectrum of the human spirit. And uh, because we are doing something which is rather unusual, like usually when you have big personalities, they find it with difficult to hold together. In Romania, where we come from, we have a proverb which says that an oak tree never grows in the shadow of another oak tree. Like they need space to manifest. And uh, we are trying to keep the oak trees together here. And um, I'm sure that once we manage with wisdom to, to achieve this, and automatically there is room for a very great development, we often discuss with each other and we are very much aware of the fact that the world of spirituality is often a world of, the world of spirituality is a world of, unfortunately, small personalities and those personalities are struggling for their own things and uh, because of this actually it is the spirituality which is always the loser the one that loses because people instead of cooperating we see this in the world of yoga instead of the yogis of the whole world cooperating beautifully and supporting each other they are actually competing, and they are competing in ways which are not positive, stimulating, encouraging. They are competing in ways which are ego-based. And that is why I guess uh, even for us this is a learning process. And we wanted to have this meeting because we wanted to bring this positive message to explain a little bit about the history of Agama, the history of Hridaya, to explain a little bit about how these things came to each and every one of us, and uh, to make people understand both the similarities and the specificities of what we teach here, because again, you are in an exceptional spiritual environment. You are in the spiritual environment where you can learn two spiritual paths that are complementary, that support each other. 
and uh, I think it is normal so even for the fact that Sahajananda and I we have a long common history we knew each other even before we were involved into a regular practice of yoga and in spirituality and even at that time we sympathized we empathized in some ways and um, I think that this is there is a higher meaning to this to the fact that we are bringing the yogas together the spiritual paths together so that for everybody there should be an illustration of the ways of oneness of the ways of true love of the ways of wisdom our yogas are stemming from the same root even if it were for the fact that since we met with each other I guess we met with each other in the autumn of 1980 so that makes 31 years ago since we know each other and uh, we met together with each other and we have studied yoga more or less together for a lifetime and uh, we start we started with pretty much the same style of yoga and with the same teacher and we studied many similar things in the beginning for a long time and while we always knew that our temperaments are different I remember even when we were together in the military service because we met through the military service that's where we met first time in communist Romania there was conscription and therefore compulsory military service and we were in the same platoon and Sahajananda being the lion was the commander of the platoon <laughs> his, nat his natural leadership was <laughs> visible even at that time and um, we did many crazy things together even at that time and uh, I remember by knowing him at that time I was seeing that he had a romantic personality he was in love and he was writing letters and it's something which even today 31 years later I don't do <laughs> I am incapable of this I have uh, some Virgo cynicism which prevents me from falling into those, those romantic excesses and so we knew we had uh, such different traits of character and at the same time we were very good comrades we were bonding very well when we did some some of the crazy things which we did in those days even before our yoga communion and um, when we got together in yoga um, I also saw that we had all these similarities like I remember last night I had a talk with the advanced pupils we had a meeting and I was revealing to them that in those days when I started yoga one of my characteristics was that I was a bit of a fanatic person I was intolerant fanatic I would despise anybody who is weak and doesn't want to put their shoulder into it I was like really full-on and it didn't take much time to see that Sahajananda was the same kind of person 
maybe he was not as arrogant as I was, <laughs> but he definitely had the commitment. He had like, I loved him from the first moment because this was a man who was ready to risk his life for it. This was a man who was ready to go the full Monty. He was not holding back. I still remember when we were young and we were studying different yoga techniques and he was learning the Yoni Mudra or I don't remember what and he immediately wanted to go in a six month tapas of that to be celibate and do just six months of that every day, hours per day and I always loved this thing. This is what I always love with people when they really want to do their spiritual practice full on. Like, no holds barred, not, not holding back at all, going, like, really believing in what they do. I remember that his partner in that time, we, we started talking about yama and niyama, so we are talking about the very initial levels of yoga, and he was so touched in the heart, he never told me, but his partner told me, know that he came home so touched after that lecture on the yamas and niyamas and he said if this thing is really true it means that there are out there some people in which you can really trust it means that there are out there some people with whom you can really commune no it's like this is the general disease of the society that we are skeptical, we are cynical, we don't dare to trust, we don't dare because everybody lives by the ego and everybody lives by this. And a man like Sahajananda immediately noticed the, the value, the, the potential which exists in this world of yoga, in this world of spirituality. So, I'm saying these things because as we developed in time, both of us discovered, I remembered so many times when we had discussions, that there exists a central core in yoga and in tantric yoga, that there exists a central core which more or less we both consider as in Kashmiri Shaivism, these higher teachings of Kashmiri Shaivism, like most of the metaphysics, most of what we understand about the worlds, the tattvas, the relationship with the divine, the various aggregates of things, they are never, nowhere explained more perfectly in Indian spirituality, and I believe in world spirituality, more than in Kashmiri Shaivism. And that's why for both of us, as we are going through yoga texts, yoga traditions, yoga initiations, it became obvious as the months were passing by and as the years were passing by that Kashmiri Shaivism was the essential understanding. And of course, all the other yoga techniques which are not belonging to Kashmiri Shaivism are very welcome and they build a staircase to heaven. And um, thus, even without choosing it, both of us in spirituality were so much influenced by the philosophy of Kashmiri Shaivism. When I went to India and finally I decided to establish these teachings, influenced by some of the yoga gurus and some of the great spirits which I also met there, it was natural for me to call this 
lineage, this schooling of yoga, Agama, because Agama is the very name of the Tantric tradition. The Kashmiri Shaivas are Agamites, is the Agamic tradition. And therefore, our very name of Agama has very much from Kashmiri Shaivism. And it was confirmed by my teachers who kind of encouraged me to go this way. And um, it was very interesting for me to see that when Sahajananda chose to express his own spirituality, he chose another word from the Kashmiri Shaivism. He chose Hridaya, which in common Indian parlance is the heart, like the area of the chest. But at the same time, in Kashmiri Shaivism, it represents the divine reality. It represents the heart of God, the heart of Shiva. It represents the supreme reality. And so it's very beautiful to see how this heritage of Kashmiri Shaivism manifested both on my side of the things and on Sahaja's side of things, uh, how it manifests, how it has influenced us. And uh, that is why in, when it comes to understanding the world and understanding the yoga practice, we feel so many things in common because we have all these common roots and all this common history and being similar and complementary at the same time. And um, that's why when we came together in Agama Yoga, we felt that these things can work together because essentially we are teaching the same thing even if the methods are different, even the temperament and the style of teaching can be very different at times. Nevertheless, we felt that there is a synergy. We felt that these things go together. It is obvious that in the beginning we thought if teaching a style of yoga or another is not going to impede on pupils, like confuse them. If somebody does this technology, will they still be able to do that technology? Somebody goes systematically into Hridaya retreats, will they still be able to be with the Kundalini program of the school and do the big mudras and this? How do these things blend with each other? And uh, really, until now, we never found any opposition or any obstacle we feel that the synergy is there. It's true, again, that people looking at these things from the standpoint of the ego, they sometimes tend to see differences, and it's inevitable up till a certain point, and I think the differences are very welcome. And that is why we sit here in front of you to both answer to the questions and to share some of our perceptions when teaching these things together so that you can see that this school is not becoming like a snake with two heads which go each one in a direction and another direction. Actually, we do have a synergy which is kept together, which is brought together by our friendship and by our common understanding of the divine ideas. And again, I have so many memories from all these years when we met. There were times when we lived in the same country. There were times when we lived apart from each other. And every time we met, we celebrated meditating and talking about some of the divine things that we discovered and even 
making experiments together and trying to find the answer to some of those things. And um, I guess that's the spirit in which we are moving also today. I did not prepare any special script for tonight. This is a spontaneous meeting and you will have your possibility to ask your questions. I'm sure Sahajananda will want to say a few words of his own into this. I, for one, because I heard people asking questions and asking questions is like we always have to answer the same questions again and again and we wanted to make things clear so that they even get to be recorded and in this way people have their answers. And um, I thought about an exotic way to make you know some of these things. I also, when I felt that people were asking, but is this, you can do this and can you do that as well? Um, I wanted to, I wanted you to know better how these things came to be and there are so many things which are collateral to this meeting um, and I wanted you to know those I from my side I don't know how Sahajananda prefers it for himself by simply asking a few questions like unlike many of you who are feeling your way into this I actually if I would be asking Sahajananda 20 questions right now I know what questions to ask and by asking the right questions I can perhaps make you understand some of these things better. So I plan that during this evening at some appropriate moment maybe should ask him about some of his perceptions. I was just thinking this evening that in this season the Shambhala meditations became more popular and actually Sahajananda has been leading Shambhala meditations for years and he had a great passion for this subject being the spiritual temperament which was in love with Shambhala and the concept as well as I did. And um, I know that he even retired in some mountain caves because he received special messages and inspiration about how to meditate and those things are things which you don't know, you couldn't have known because you haven't been part of his adventure. I had the privilege of being part of his path of discovery and that is why we thought that opening up and letting you know some things you'll understand a little bit better about the path in which you yourselves are part and thus obtain more harmony, obtain more oneness. I don't know if at this point you want to interfere or say something and slowly, slowly we'll get <laughs> into all this. Yes, first of all I'm very happy and grateful to be here again. So I don't know how to say welcome or <laughs> I am welcome. I'm very happy. <laughs> I'm very happy to be again with you. And um, a new season starts for me, and I'm very excited about this. Uh, it is strange. I had the sensation to speak in Romania. It's 
because I'm so, he's Romanian, because I'm so um, familiar, I feel myself for so familiar. I came, I just came from Romania and uh, <laughs> I spoke uh, for many months, six months, almost only in Romanian. And now here was the tendency to <laughs> speak again <laughs> in Romania with you. Um, about uh, what uh, Swami already mentioned, actually these ideas we, uh, we discussed about uh, these years. And um, I would say this is nothing uh, new. We, we had this idea and of course we, when I arrived here on the island uh, four years ago, um, it was after a period in which I was in a way retired for, from teaching and, uh, and um, yes, from, from teaching. And um, Swami thought initially that uh, I will simply teach the Kundalini Yoga program and I had this idea for a while, but um, on the other hand, I felt that uh, the retreats are more um, fitted with what I felt. And um, it was like I felt the need to express myself in a more, in a more intimate way. So indeed, I had all this experience because we, we actually uh, pass through the same uh, training, through the same, we had the same teacher and mainly we, we follow the same path. But at a certain point, I felt to express this, which is, I would say, more, more the result of uh, also of a personal experience, which is not, uh, so much, uh, on the other hand, not so much personal, because it is coming from this tradition of non-duality. And it is, I would say, a way to express all the teachings I had from a different perspective from a perspective which is more connected with my new understanding or my new vision about world and about who am I. So in this way the things came. But uh, we discussed about this and um, I also feel that uh, it is very well in the way in, in which we are here in Agama. And in this, it is very beneficial for, for you. Um, also because there are two different approaches. They have a lot of uh, or many common backgrounds, but um, there are also two different approaches. It is like having 
as uh, Swami said, an approach of Ramana Maharshi and an approach of Swami Shivananda or Swami Satyananda together, which is great. And also, uh, from I would say from a particular um, point of view, it helps you to, to be detached from a kind of dogmatism, from this idea that only in this way it is and only me or only Swami should be followed or only this teaching is the most uh, important thing, teaching. You can see that the as in the Buddhist tradition it is said, each monk has its own path. Of course, there are some common milestones, but uh, still, there is also a lot of uh, intimacy in the spiritual practice. And indeed, it is said that uh, an oak cannot... Uh, live or cannot be developed at the shadow of an oak. But I would say that uh, being together, it is an approach in which you can see that you can become as well oaks or even greater baobabs uh, being together. So the fact that it is perfectly possible to, to be together even though we have very profound faith and uh, understanding in our path, is a, is a lesson for you that you can also go deeper, developing your own approach. We are here to give you advice. You are he we are here to, to help you when you need. But also, at least from my point of view, I strongly recommend and advise you to go into this search, into this spiritual path with all your might, with all your aspiration, and see that each of us has its own path. And here, it is not a matter of uh, making disciples. I like uh, an affirmation of uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj, he said, I don't make disciples, I make masters. So, I think that uh, the fact that we are together is also an opportunity to, to see that you can grow in your own specific way. You, have, you can have this freedom to affirm yourself. And I consider that this is a very important thing. Because, on the other hand, I saw in many situations how this tendency appears. You might follow a teacher, and this is, it might be a, a wonderful uh, person, but it comes with this bhakti, with this devotion, a kind of dependence which makes you to actually, which prevents to, you to develop more. But here, this situation, I consider that helps you to, 
to not be so much into this uh, idea that uh, it, you are just a follower, that you can see the, the alive part of the, of the uh, spiritual uh, path, and you can see that this is unfolding here, now, for each of us. And this is, I can see, the beautiful. Now, if I think that some of the pupils here, and especially some of the old pupils, they simply didn't know you. Like suddenly, at some point in the history, you appeared—not for me, who knew you, but for them—and you started with the retreats and with Hridaya Yoga. And they don't know many things about your background because when you are here, you are very different than the way I know you that you have been at some times. You mean and in the army? You mean in the army? In the <laughs> army and after. <laughs> that's true. In the army also. I will not tell to people and I hope <laughs> you will not tell also <laughs> some of our common adventures in the army. But um, <laughs> that's a long time ago. Our sins have been forgiven. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I was just planning to ask you a set of questions which will show a little bit. Like, for example, I know that there were times in your life when you did staggering amounts of karma yoga. I know that you told me that there was a time in your life where because you did a lot of karma yoga, you could not sleep more than three, four hours every night. Can you share a little, because people think that Sahajananda does meditation, but I know that Sahajananda also believes in the cause in which he is, and he is ready to put his life into it. And I know there were those periods. Would you like to share a little bit of... <laughs> Of that, so that people get a bit motivated and maybe pull some fingers from some places and start <laughs> doing some karma yoga. Okay. So anyway, I will not do it in a didactical way. <laughs> you should do karma yoga. <laughs> Um, it is a little difficult for me to speak about all this because I simply prefer to avoid speaking about the past, only about the present moment. You know, some of you know me from the retreats and from the periods we spent here. And I think that this present moment contains in it all the, <laughs> all the past, with all these histories. Um, but if Swami asks me, and uh, asks me, and uh, I cannot refuse <laughs> him, <laughs> well, uh, first of all, we started uh, yoga in a period, maybe Swami told you this before, but um, Maybe some of you don't know. We, some, we started yoga in a period, in a difficult period in um, Romania, in the communist times. 
and uh, some might think that this was uh, some something unfortunate but i consider that for us was very fortunate because it was a way of practicing which indeed made us to put our life into this and we risked a lot we had some periods with uh, when when we had problems with the uh, secret services we were in jail for this so we had these things which made us to to make out of yoga practice a matter of like life and death also it was like a light for us in those times when there were so so many stupid things and so much um, materialistic thinking to have this air to breathe this yoga practice and after having uh, some absurd uh, situations to go and read nirvana shaktam of shankara or to meditate or uh, and also we had uh, for us because in those times any yoga book was uh, forbidden there were no yoga books in libraries. They simply took all the, the yoga books from libraries. So it is just uh, just to give you an image what uh, happened. Uh, the transcendental meditation came in Romania for a while. And then all those who were there were out of their jobs. And they were, like say, professors in university. And then from those moments they arrived just whipping the floor or doing some things for one year or even more so it was a period which in a way creating a, a challenging a challenging period for us and in this way we were prepared to put everything in this so it wasn't like uh, coming to do a yoga practice just for relaxing a little or after a tiring or boring week uh, week and so uh, doing a little spirituality uh, in our life it was our life and this happened uh, even in those periods and uh, it is very interesting i was uh, thinking about this fact uh, we met, maybe it was also the destiny, but we met in those times and we were, let's say, 20 people, maybe 30 people who were very dedicated. And we are practicing, it was illegal, as I said, and we are practicing yoga. After 1990, 1989, um, when yoga became le uh, legal, we were already prepared. There were, uh, let's say, 10 years of yoga we practiced from 1980 or 81 till 1989 we prepare or we were prepared for teaching and a lot of people came so in the beginning in Romania after the revolution we had classes with 1000 people I mean lectures with 1000 people and the classes were also we had even from the first 
here in Bucharest more than 2,000 people. And the number was growing. And for example, when I start the first retreat, I had to do a selection. There were 300 people in that uh, hall when I started to do it. But I had to do a selection from 1,000 people, or even more than 1,000 people. So the things changed. But it is interesting that those who were in those periods, those 20 people, are still, I would say, those who were the most serious person. Of course, during all these years, thousands of people came in uh, school, in our yoga school, and many beautiful people, and, uh, but still, there weren't so much dedicated, or there weren't so many uh, so, it was happened like this, where the conditions there were um, to do this, to go into this with all your life. And this helped us a lot. And after the revolution, because everything changed, we were in practicing in hidden and so on. And then to be able to teach to thousands of people was, of course, a different uh, thing and uh, demanded a lot of karma yoga. And um, still, even in those periods, uh, about the spirit of karma yoga, um, Swami asked me to, to keep a lecture about Karma Yoga. And I said that I, can, I, I don't consider that Karma Yoga can be uh, taught in teachings, speaking about this. It is more about the spirit. And I think that this spirit can be learned by doing and practicing. And this was the way in which I I started to do this because it was needed, because I, I believed in, in yoga and there were so many things to be done in those periods and I started to do, I started to do them. And then the things were evolved, but uh, interesting enough, there were people who could do lectures, who could keep lectures like, you know, even here. There are a lot of people who are keeping lectures. But I realized that for some specific karma yoga things, there were only very few people who were still doing even very simple, very, very simple things. They were willing to do or they were doing this simply because they were doing this. So there were more people who are able, were able to keep a lecture. It is much easier to keep a lecture than to practice karma yoga. <laughs> so there were periods in which 
I didn't keep lectures. Others were keeping lectures. I was doing karma yoga in very common things. And I think that uh, this is about the spirit of karma yoga. And even this concept for me of karma yoga was not, uh, is not a, that I did karma yoga because my life was like this. I renounced to my job. I was an engineer. I renounced, simply renounced to that job and dedicated to yoga practice. I was uh, teaching. I was uh, doing all things which were needed for that school. I was writing the the lectures, the, the courses, uh, the yoga courses in Romania. And I did everything as a continuous dedication. There were not moments of karma yoga. I didn't, I didn't have money for, I didn't take money for, for what I was doing. For me, it was very simple because I didn't care about uh, paying the bills or whatever. So I was just free from this. I had uh, gasoline in my car and all of this. And I was doing everything which was needed. So I consider that simply the life itself was a dedication in, uh, <coughs> in this, in karma yoga, or in acting like this. And there were indeed some difficult moments in, in uh, Romania when I couldn't sleep over. There was no time, actually, there was no time for sleeping more than three hours per, per night or per day or whatever, how the things were coming. But this was um, because it was a necessity. There were some. Um, uh, it was a period in which I had to, to lead the school in Romania. I was the one who was the leader in the, the, the school, and there were so many things to be done. So it was like this. I will not give you the schedule because uh, <laughs> it is not uh, so relevant, or I don't know. I. Yes, Swami knows because I told him how the things were going from Sunday to till uh, Saturday or we started, uh, I used to start uh, counting from Sunday because was, uh, Sunday was the first, uh, it was like a beginning for me, the Sunday day, with uh, yoga from morning till night, fr till night, um, yoga classes. And speaking about what happened after each day. So yes, it was like this. But again, it is more about the spirit, not that I did this and um, you should do this. It's about feeling, about feeling this, about feeling that, yes, yoga can become your your way of living. And it is a kind of honesty. If the things are starting like this, 
doesn't matter that uh, the colleague is not doing karma yoga. It is a matter of honesty. It's a matter of, of being aware of what you are doing and surrender. It's very much about surrender. You are not doing for a person or another. You are not in a competition with another person. It's just a matter of surrender and letting yourself to be a vessel and doing what is needed. Simply like this. Yes, because of this, in our school, um, many people did karma yoga, much more than here. I, Swami knows also this, and uh, he said uh, how to do, <laughs> to, to bring this spirit uh, here. And, but this is an, a different uh, issue. Uh, my opinion is that uh, maybe if we would create uh, um, frame or uh, uh, an, an, like an ashram, it will be much easier for many just to surrender, not thinking about anything else, just to surrender and going deeper. But even, even uh, here, for you stay so many months here, I yes, I consider that a lot of things can be changed in changed in this attitude of not just grabbing things or just practicing karma yoga, uh, hatha yoga, or meditation, or a thing or another, but also helping your friends, doing this with, uh, with devotion and, and love. Uh, I heard here, being here, I heard situations like, uh, well, uh, people ask uh, somebody, please help me with, uh, I have to move and I cannot, and, and the person said, uh, well, I am practicing, I am now doing my sadhana, I am practicing, so I cannot help you, or, which I consider is not the spirit of yoga. It's not... Uh, is not the, the real approach in yoga. If you come from this egotistic, uh, egotic tendency, I have to do, I have to, to realize and to, to attain something, you will not uh, be able to, give, to go further, too much further, because there is still the ego there, there's still the ego involvement. It is true, both of us, we started in this way, we have, we have to do, we pushed. But, as Swami mentioned, little by little, we understood that this is not the, the main thing or the only thing that matters, this pushing, but also this spirit of surrender, of understanding that what really matters is to be, to be human, a human being in its real sense and then from this going in this who am I in this understanding of our real real nature starting from an artificial uh, egotic uh, perspective you cannot really go into this understanding of who you really are but when there is an harmony in your 
practice, in your life, in your dedication, devotion, then it is easier. You, you come closer to the spirit of yoga in this way. It's natural to, to surrender or to, to help a friend. Or it is because you practiced. This is just the result of this. It is yoga as well there. So it was like this. I know that you crystallized much of what you call today this Hridaya style as a result of some of your own experiences, meditations. I remember that for years you were doing solitary retreats for long periods of time. You were trying to hit 40 days or 49 days of retreats and you experienced many interesting things, extreme like being away from any medical help or human presence or and uh, if I remember correctly, you did it several years in a row, like every year you're trying to do again. And um, I'm asking this because maybe you want to say a few things, because I, many people see that during the Hridaya retreats, you create a more severe atmosphere, a more, and this reflects, as far as you told me, it reflects the conditions in which you yourself discovered some of these things for yourself, and you want to transmit it to the people in the way in which maybe you can say a few things about this so people can understand from where does this experience comes like how many of those retreats you did those are of course not your only practice but just in particular you know how many of those solitary retreats and for which length of time and maybe if you want to share one or two experiences from that. Yeah, thank you for asking me uh, about uh, this because it is a way of uh, speaking indeed about the story of uh, the retreats, how the retreats, uh, these retreats happened or Hridaya retreat uh, started to, to, to appear, the idea of the Hridaya retreat appeared. Um, I speak about this, but uh, we don't have too much time to focus upon this in the Hridaya retreat about the story. Yes, um, again, here, this need for doing solitary retreats appeared as a consequence, I would say, of a kind of spiritual crisis was not uh, in that sense that uh, uh, not this dramatical uh, spiritual crisis but um, it was when I was at the age of uh, 32 and I realized that uh, uh, Jesus lived only 33 years and he realized so many things and me even though was a yoga teacher and so I realized that it is so small what uh, what happened in my spiritual practice and so on so of course this was still an egotic approach was uh, I was unhappy with this uh, what happened there and I uh, wanting more and this happened like this so this is what uh, happened. So I feel the need to go further. So 
we were in a school. Everything was very flourishing. It was the third or fourth year after the communist time. The school was going bigger, growing bigger and bigger. And uh, all the things were very good. But on the other hand, I felt that uh, there is a need for more. That I don't want to be just a teacher. I want simply to, to go further in this path, on this spiritual path. It's the final revelation of our real nature, which is what matters. And with this aspiration, I started to do these retreats. And I did retreats uh, in caves. Uh, my teacher told me to do simply to close uh, myself in a room in a city and simply stay there for 30 days or whatever. And I answered him that I cannot. I cannot do this. I've, I'm so much inspired by, by nature. So for me, the retreat was not just a period of, of uh, actually, it was not a period of, of running away from the world. It was just a period of, of coming in tune with the nature and with, with life. And, uh, and with this harmonious environment to go further and further. And uh, yes, I started to do each year retreats. and. I would say that uh, I uh, experienced many, many, many uh, beautiful things and uh, uh, was uh, a very profound lesson. I didn't have too much, too much uh, support um, from uh, my teacher because it was not I would say not his path. It was not his path, this path of meditation and going in a retreat. Um, so for example, after a 49-day retreat, retreat, I thought that my mind would stop completely. So this was the idea with which I, I started the retreat. And of course, it, it doesn't happen like this. <laughs> And now I can realize, oh, what naive I was. But uh, so there were many things which I consider that could be uh, skipped in a way if with um, more, more guidance. But this was as it was. I, there were periods, was a retreat uh, with uh, a lot of um, strange situations. You know those who are in who did the retreats. Uh, you know my advice at the beginning and also during uh, some um, periods. Don't dramatize. Don't dramatize. Don't dramatize. Whatever happens, don't dramatize. So this came from the personal experience when I was in a retreat and there was a very strange situation with a lot of entities perceiving entities, negative entities, and uh, uh, the dreams were very strange, and uh, I don't want to go into details, but anyway, 
I understood how a man can become crazy. And I understood in those times how important it is to keep the witness consciousness, to be a witness, to, to see all this, but not to go into those uh, things or believing. I, for example, there was a voice, I could hear a voice who would tell me what to do or the fact that in a half an hour it will rain. And it was true. But always I kept this witnessing. Okay, it is a voice, it is, let's see what is happening. Not believing, yes, or not considering this is God talking to me or this is a, a master. Or just trying to, to be aware of what is happening and uh, uh, to be a witness of all this without dramatizing. Why I'm saying this? Because a realization came that in some stories in the, in the Christian tradition especially, um, there are monks and uh, very respective saint uh, persons who are speaking about years and years of fighting with devil and fight and fight and fight. The experience there, maybe I'm wrong, but the personal experience which I have, so my experience in this direction is that this is just dramatizing. So you can go into this ad infinitum. You can continue like this, fighting with the devil, devil and imagining and then fighting and then seeing and then uh, being uh, wanting to, to, to fight continuously. It's like it's just a way of feeding with your attention. You are feeding this, this phenomenon. The attitude which is recommended actually in all contemplative traditions is to become a witness, to keep this witness attitude. And keeping the witness attitude is a way of letting these things to come and go. And I saw that this is the best way of, of getting rid from this. There was not a point of uh, creating a story with uh, fighting with uh, uh, negative entities and so on. I saw what this means. And then after that retreat, and after actually after I understood this attitude of not dramatizing, the things went easier and there were no situations like this and with this with a how to say with this practice with this intimate experience come a kind of trust a kind of uh, trust that yes with surrender with a proper attitude these things uh, cannot appear or cannot uh, harm ourselves. That's why when somebody comes to me and say, well, I'm, uh, I had uh, this uh, vision or I have uh, this fighting with this and that, this is not something uh, uncommon or strange for me. But also I feel that I can, there can be uh, 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 guidance and there can be a, a way through which uh, the things are are resolved, can be resolved. Um, also, there were 
moments of bliss. There were moments of uh, very simple happiness of being in the nature. There were moments in which I, I simply saw how the fear can be overcome. And um, just an example. Meditating. in uh, the cave, actually at the entrance of the cave, and it was night and some strange sounds were in the forest looking like uh, maybe a bear will be there or something like this. And I was meditating and um, this started to create a kind of uh, disturbance. So I stopped and looked what happened open the eyes and then uh, after a while I simply realized that I realized that the, the sound was coming from behind me from the cave there were just some drops of water in the cave and they were falling and then because of the way in which the echoes there I thought that it is outside and this remind me the story of uh, uh, with the snake and the rope you know the famous, famous story that you see uh, a rope and you consider that you are it is a snake and you are uh, uh, scared ab about this this is a story that illustrates this ignorance and how actually you you misinterpret all this word forgetting about oneness, forgetting about uh, the self. And in the same way, I realized that it is something, it was like something coming behind. It's like coming from here, which I project outside. And with this, a kind of love and harmony and bliss came in which it was like the whole nature became alive, became this very spirit, and it was simply to to reinforce this condition, this idea that there, there is no no need for fear or there is no reasons to be afraid of something. Everything is so much taken care of. And from those, from that retreat, from that moment, there was no fear in the darkness or about. Uh, there was simply no, not fear coming from a kind of trust, not uh, uh, something com coming from a kind of trust in a harmony. And indeed, as Swami mentioned, there were uh, places very remote places. There were places, let's say, for in some places there were 14 kilometers around, nobody was, I was aware that no human being was around. 
So any uh, cobra if would come and uh, bite me, or there were there in that uh, area, deeper vipers, vipers, vipers there, uh, quite common. I so it was like knowing I was aware that if it happens, it is happening. But on the other hand, I would simply there was this surrender, this trust that. Uh, This trust which came with this that understanding. Then, in a in another retreat, came a beautiful grace in which indeed there was a beautiful grace period in which indeed the mind stopped and uh, for days. There was just bliss and just the ether, like the space, just speciality, no physical body anymore. And uh, it was like the wind was passing through me and I was the wind. and. So many experience, even experiences with even with the eyes open, and also this was during meditation, which was just bliss and this feeling of oneness and this wonderment. I would like to ask you a few questions to demonstrate to people who did not understand this that your long-term practice of yoga brought you to these things. You said you had like a spiritual crisis, you wanted to go deeper. After how many years of yoga did this happen? Um, this happened after maybe 13 years of yoga or something like this. So 12, 12. in those 13 years of yoga, as far as I know, you have been quite a formidable practitioner. Like you did use your Leo willpower and you did practice. You are not dilly-dallying. You're not a lazy yogi who didn't practice and you did everything. Just for the curiosity, the people will that don't need to imitate such a thing. Do you remember when you were making contests with your friend Niku and who is doing more Udiana Bandas or Naulis every day? <laughs> Do you still remember how many you were doing every day? Well, like which were the numbers approximately? <laughs> well, I, I'm not, I, I don't consider myself a hard uh, practitioner. No, because no. you heard harder than that. No, but yeah. now you are here and now, so. No, no I you. really don't. Uh, there was indeed a period in which uh, <laughs> it was this nice uh, way of making uh, contests and practicing and uh, hearing, yes, I did 150. Oh, you did 150 with Yana, then I will do 200. And then you stayed Sarvangasana, Sarvangasana, one hour. Then I will do two hours of Halasana, saying, look, I did two hours of Halasana. So, uh, and with this, uh, but was, was uh, the, but indeed was also a matter of a constant practice, and this was indeed this was a constant practice which 
which um, was um, yes a practice of many techniques of so you mentioned those Sundays where you're teaching yoga from morning till evening for how many years did you keep on with those long Sundays how many years did you teach every Saturday um, and Sunday or I, I can say precisely so I would just give maybe I'm wrong no, just but let's say say maybe seven years or something like this and you are teaching from which hour in the morning till which hour in the evening no, the actual uh, teachings were from uh, eight in the morning till uh, let's say ten in the evening but then after that I would remain with people sometimes till twelve then it was a period when, when I remained even till so it was like 14 hours, maybe 16 hours of teaching every Sunday? And you're teaching yes. in other days of the week, right? Oh, of course. Like <laughs> yes. Saturday, Wednesday, Thursday, in other days. Monday also. <laughs> That's just because, because some teachers in the school, they teach two times per week and they think it's very demanding on them. No, no just no, no, to no. make no, a no, bit no. of a combat. And no, uh, I, I, I remember you were famous through the fact that you tortured people with Vajroli mudras, which most people here don't know. It's a very intense mudra. Imagine like a double nauli or something like this. Like it's like two times more than a nauli or something. Do you have any recollection of how many of those you did in one day on a Sunday? So, um, like multiply with two, and you will get it in terms. The of one that. who tortures the people, <laughs> maybe they will be uh, <laughs> scared. <laughs> <laughs> so. I yes, just want I to show felt. to them, yes. I know you are modest and you wouldn't no. talk about this, but I just want to show to them that this is based on a constant work and it's not yeah. the result of just a miracle. It's based on building up some things through your yoga practice. That's why I'm, I yes, know that you are not lying about these things. It's, so just tr uh, it's true, it's true. I can say only about the sadhana was 49 uh, Vajrolis daily. For This was for maybe that was your personal 15 sadhana. or 20 years but uh, 15 maybe it's too much 20, but, but you are doing it with the pupils in the class but as I well. do I did of so course how many did you do on Sunday oh. when you did it for every group yes of course having this experience and having this uh, easiness of doing I would uh, do and they were indeed uh, but it was a kind of... Uh, you don't give us a number still. Give us <laughs> How much did you do on a Sunday, Vajroli Mudras? I wasn't too much in counting, but I, I simply... <laughs> I simply want to, to... I think was inspiring for them, because even though... Yes. Where it, you could say, you could, you could see, it's, yes, it wasn't like I... It, I didn't do this each Sunday or... But there were some classes in which let's do and to see that you can do, you can do and you can go beyond limits. You, your ideas about this. Of course, this gives also a lot of um, a lot of understanding, and there are also a lot of revelations about this because you cannot do this pushing and only pushing and pushing pushing because you'd be exhausted so you start to feel the rhythm in which it can be done how to 
how the energy is coming and how to surrender into this practice and going and going and how the condition of the mind is in this way of doing and doing and doing. So how the transformations appear in uh, this. So it was not just the fact that I was doing this. I No, uh, I understand the uh, why Swami is emphasizing numbers and it is important to understand that yes it was a serious practice yes it was a serious practice but in the same time was an awareness and i would say the awareness was improved and improved also after the 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 retreats and the experiences in the in the caves uh, improved a lot so this attitude of surrender in doing this, this attitude of finding the, the most harmonious way of, of practicing and going deeper and, and the condition of the mind associated with, with this. So yes, I consider that um, it might be inspiring to see that you can do more than, let's say, 10 practices or 10 executions or, or, or so on. And this is also with meditation. There are people, and you know, in retreats they come and uh, and consider that they cannot do more than they are. Of course, some are just beginners, but there are people who still are practitioners, and they have a long time term practice of meditation. But they have this idea that they cannot do more than half an hour, or half an hour is enough. And in ten days we can experience this loving meditation you know i insist about this loving meditation it's important to to love meditation and to come in this approach not pushing but also loving meditation and then in the end of some of the retreats there are also three hours meditations so you can easily overcome these limits like I cannot do more than half an hour meditation and you realize that the mind can be calm and there can be a lot of there might be a lot of uh, transformations and understandings in a three-hour meditation because the mind will, 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 will uh, uh, be against this will, uh, will uh, say no in the beginning but then Sooner or later, a surrender is coming. You can go and have daydreaming and uh, do for one hour, then you come back and then you go deeper and you understand. And then it is a condition, it is like you have more, more uh, harmony after one hour or two hours and you can go even deeper. So there is a rhythm and there is a practice related with meditation, related with uh, any kind of sadhana, which has its intimacy, which has this beauty, its beauty, which cannot be understood if we just take it at the superficial level or just uh, doing <coughs> in a superficial way. So, yes. And just to continue this idea with uh, the retreats, uh, just to say that 
after these retreats, I used to, to, to tell people, to tell to my students what happened there and how it was. And, but then I understood that this is not so much helpful. So um, this inspiration came to follow, to, to follow, to, to create the conditions, to do a retreat in which to create the conditions like in a cave retreat. And then to, to speak about this in the retreat itself, to, to, to show this wonder, one, wonderful transformation, not speaking, but practicing, just going through the same process. And in this way came the, the idea of a retreat. At those times, I didn't know about uh, Vipassana retreat, for example. I didn't know about any kind of meditation retreat, uh, let's say, uh, conventional. or uh, I didn't know the way they were did. But then I, I saw that a lot of recommendations were similar. But in Hridaya retreat, they came out of this, out of a um, experience which I consider that can be uh, translated or can be shared, not in speaking, but in meditating, meditating together. And as you, many of you, I'm happy to say this, as many of you already know, this is bringing so much joy and so much uh, uh, sense and so much um, harmony in, uh, in our life. Usually meditation is considered uh, to be or to do doing too much meditation you might be some you might become a lunatic or might become uh, space out or not being able to integrate more in the world I think the Hridaya retreat actually the experience and uh, actually uh, in my last retreat a person just told me after the retreat just told me a thing which is uh, uh, very which I want to share with you she said uh, I feel there is no no problem in integrating in society again I feel much more inspired much more full of enthusiasm in doing I, I regain my enthusiasm and trust in life after doing this retreat so these fears about um, alienation which might come when uh, meditation is done only for training the mind and only in the mind doesn't appear in this centeredness, in this heart, which is your intimate I. Ramana said in a very beautiful way, he, he said, to think that self-inquiry can bring alienation, it is like saying you was poisoned out of drinking Amrita, out of drinking the nectar of immortality. So you cannot be poisoned, you cannot die because you drink the nectar of immortality, you cannot be alienated because you are centering in who you really are. 
you are going deeper in uh, who you really are. So, with all these experiences, this um, Hridaya retreats and what will happen with this uh, uh, Hridaya TTC, it is like a path is unfolding and uh, I also simply surrender to what would happen and it is not my my approach or my vision it's just the inspiration which comes from so many from Shaivist tra tradition from Ramana Maharshi and from so many uh, yoga teachers of course it has this basis in a practical in the in a practice which was done but it is like this so even um, this idea of uh, a kind of uh, competition or with agama or cannot uh, exist because it's just an unfolding it's not about uh, competition it's about it's about an authenticity in your spiritual practice you simply follow your aspiration your heart and as uh, Théard de Chardin said whatever uh, whatever whatever elevates, elevates ultimately unites. unites you so whatever elevates is meeting is meeting so whatever elevates is meeting so well I won't insist asking you how many Vajrolis you did on a Sunday <laughs> although you didn't answer that one I hope I, I answered anyway <laughs> I hope I answered it's but um, so what I wanted, what my line of questions was going to is, do you think that the achievements, the accomplishments which you had in those retreats, they were served by those 13 years of yoga which you did before preparing you for it? Like if you would have been going in a cave without having done those 13 years of yoga and whatever other things you did, tantric practice, parabhija meditation, kundalini, mudras, and all the other things? Generally, I think it would be a mistake to consider that uh, something is happening in our life only because of a thing or another, ignoring all this background. So, yes this background is so important and even if there were errors and even though uh, yes there were things which can which could be done in a easier way or uh, maybe with some proper guidance many periods of just uh, whirling in a circle could would be skipped still all of them had their importance and uh, 
yes, of course, all these um, prepared. And uh, even this need to do this, even what happened, of course, all of them are just the result of this practice and of uh, the aspiration, the constant practice. Yes, it's true. Do you want to ask me something or shall we let people ask some questions? Well, <laughs> I can see the. I can see the reason you 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 ask me. So I don't uh, want to make just uh, <laughs> put you to <laughs> to tell us uh, stories. I'm sure that uh, people know you much better. No, I didn't speak me. about most of those stories. No. You see, and you put me to do this. <laughs> it's not fair. It's not fair. I mean, anyway. So if any of you have questions, meanwhile, prepare. The microphone is there. We need to hear them in the microphone. just come here so that they can be recorded. This is the stillness be before the storm. I'm expecting <laughs> a lot of questions to come. <laughs> difference in temperament can be seen in the style of practice as well. When we were young, we started with a sort of general made recipe, like he says that he has not been really helped by, because he didn't know about how you do a meditation retreat, his teacher did not advise him correctly about something, so he had to do many experiments on his own. In the same way, I myself experienced the same issue <clears throat> that actually I had to create my own practice. Like I did not have the, a system of practice which had been conceived by a person who was similar to me and who had a temperament similar to me and I could just endorse that practice. I could copy somebody's practice. We both learned from a teacher who had a temperament not really like mine, not really like Sahajananda's. So each one of us had to find their own tone, their own tune, their own music. And um, that is why I also struggled, because I had to find my own style. And um, I, being the temperament which I am, I have, I worked always with a lot of 
wild energy. When I was young, I had a very, very wild, untamed energy. Maybe Sahajananda can tell you a few stories about those days, like what we were doing. And uh, this energy manifested as a great physical energy as well, and it manifested as a great sexual energy as well, and it manifested as a lot of Kundalini effects and a lot of Kundalini style things. And because of this, I loved the energy practice of yoga, and I discovered pretty early in the game that if I was pumping up my energy a lot, doing what the Kundalini practitioners in our school call the Shakti Chalana Mudra, therefore whipping up the energy in a frenzy, if I would do that for hours in a row, that would produce in the end some clicks in the consciousness and some moving in some states of consciousness. It is very interesting that first time when I discovered this, it was in an evening when I did meditation with Sahajananda and a couple of other common friends. We were meeting in the apartment of a lady who was giving us a room for us to practice yoga. And we did some music meditation with some Klaus Schulze music and some other stuff. And we pumped it up and we pumped it up and we pumped it up. And I think we went for three, four hours with lots of rising of energy. And at that time, I didn't even know that this was exactly called Shakti Chalana. It was more like intuitively or instinctively I was tending to, to bring this huge rise of energy. So for me, it was a lot of Kundalini involved into it. And then when I went home after I separated from them, I went home and I did more meditation. But in the moment when I did meditation, I was in the home of my tantric partner in that day. And I went home and I did a meditation with her and I just held her by the hands. And as I got, I don't think I got more than three minutes in that meditation before I entered in a state of Samadhi. And it was one of the big states of Samadhi. And it just happened, boom, like this. And it hit me without any warning. And I didn't even know to expect it. And afterwards, when I came out of that state, I started asking myself, how did that come? Why did it come tonight? And the only thing which I did in that night was that I did three hours or four hours of pumping the energy up madly. This has always been a bit of my temperament to be a bit crazy. Ever since I was young, um, I hope you understand, not really crazy pathologically. I never, never got committed into an institution or something crazy for God, as we'd like to say. Ever since I was young, I noticed that I was lacking some of the characteristics of my astrological sign. Like, for example, I'm a person who can be very meticulous on some things, but generally I'm very hasty and I can leave things in disorder and things which would freak out a real Virgo. And many people ask me, what sort of Virgo are you? And I remember I read in an astrology book in those days that there existed a special kind of Virgo, a very peculiar type of Virgos. A small percentage of the Virgos wore what was called by a term in the, in the Bible. It was one of the parables of Jesus. They were called the mad virgins. 
the crazy virgins, and they were exactly, completely topsy-turvy than what a Virgo is. It was like completely upside down than what a, Vir a Virgo would be orderly, meticulous, and take its time, and a crazy Virgo would drop everything and do something crazy. So I identified in a certain way with that pattern in those days, and that's why I was following this path of pushing things to the extreme, like doing things in a wild way. I was the kind of person who would stay and do more or less normal things. I also did lots of karma yoga and I loved the way Sahajananda put it because I didn't think I was doing karma yoga. My life was a yoga. So I was doing karma yoga 24-7 because my life was a yoga. So I would be doing karma yoga and teaching and this and that and then suddenly my energy would flare up during the yoga practice or during some time and then I would start having some really intense experiences. Like I would like to push the energy very intensely. And this intensity paid. Then slowly, slowly I started realizing that every time when I was pushing the energy up and up with great emotional intensity. For me, the emotional intensity also mattered a lot. I loved very much feelings of being heroic. I loved very much feelings of great love for God. I remember it was Sahajananda who first of all introduced me to that wonderful CD with music from Rumi made by Deepak Chopra, the gift of love and so on. And we had a meditation and it's like I completely broke into pieces in that meditation and like when that CD was over both I and another friend of ours who were doing this meditation all together it's, we looked at Sahajananda and asked him what on earth was that you know it's like who did compose this music and like because mixed with meditation and mixed with bhakti and mixed with kundalini and it was like dynamite it was like you could go in samadhi just because of that. And that, that was the day when I connected indeed with the Sufis and with Rumi and with, it was like a complete opening. So that was... And then, sorry, and then after the CD ended, we said... Let's do it again. Let's do it again. So we just <laughs> played it once more, of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Like all extreme things should be done again and again and again. And the same spirit of extreme practice I had in everything. Like when doing Hatha Yoga, when doing Kundalini, when doing sexual Tantra, when doing Karma Yoga things, I would always do these things abundantly. And... Um, I think this commitment, I think this kind of commitment which I had served me a lot. Now when I look back, I can see that this crazy style was uh, good for something. I remember I had a similar spiritual crisis and I had that crisis when I was 33 years old, so it happened after his. And um, I had it because I've been to Jerusalem to see this holy light ceremony which happens in the Saturday before the Orthodox Easter, which is a sort of annual miracle which happens in Jerusalem, in the Orthodox Easter on the tomb of Jesus. 
and after that I visited Mount Athos and I visited some monasteries in Wadi Keld in the canyons of Palestine and I saw there such amazing proofs of past devotion that I who thought that I was crazy for God I felt very humble in front of what I saw like those people were hundreds of times more committed more devoted than I was I was a complete baby compared to them and there was a time in my life when I'm just giving this as an example and it's not something which you can follow artificially like you cannot imitate me in this but that produced a very important spiritual awakening a form of awakening of the heart it's not that I had not had awakening of the heart with tears and others before but even after many years of yoga I re-experienced it once more and I still remember I was with a Danish friend and pupil in the Athens railway station or maybe it was Thessaloniki I don't even remember and I was preparing to take the train to go towards Mount Athos and I was constantly crying because I was in that state of bliss and in that state of bliss I took some inner resolution I was in a state of clarity I was in a state of divine inspiration and in that state I took some very strong decisions because I saw how some people put their lives for spiritual development and in being in that state of grace being in that state of light I re made it's not that until then I hadn't done efforts or I was not determined I was but that was a sort of refreshing of everything and I remember still that time it was in 95 so I was 33 at that time and I also felt and I didn't think about Jesus who lived 33 years it was my feeling that a human being a man has full-on ojas and full-on energy this energy on which I relied up till the age of 35 that can be a negative self-suggestion because it's like you program yourself that after 35 it will be diminishing which is self-hypnosis after all but it doesn't matter at that time I was just and I felt like you know I really have to break through in a more significant way until the age of 35 if I don't do it until the age of 35 how am I going to find the energy the willpower the enthusiasm the madness the, to do it after that and that's why in that state of grace I gave myself a deadline I already had experienced several times states of Samadhi until that time but it was random and it was in some exceptional situations where I had the time and the motivation to pump the energy to do lots of these practices to accumulate energy so in that day on that in that railway station I simply took a decision and my decision was that if until the age if, if until the day when I would become 35 if until that day I would not have the inner realization at a level which would allow me to sustain it constantly I would simply retire 
I would make everything possible to get a hut somewhere in a forest in the mountains and I would stop teaching and go into that and simply stay there until I die or until something would happen. So I took an oath to myself that that's what I was going to do. And in this way, I basically made a sort of a dangerous game, like I was blackmailing the divine consciousness to kind of show me black or white. You know, it's like, don't keep me, don't put. I simply pushed because I was a bit mad. And the chain of events which happened in the following two years, in that time I was living in Denmark, and the chain of events which followed was radical, a lot of transformation, and I discovered further practices which pushed me regularly in many states of spiritual insight, and those were the days when I had some of the definitive realizations which I had. And it was a joke because really two years later when I finally became 35 years of age, I looked back and I could see that God had a sense of humor and that indeed there was a response that the universe is alive and it answers to everything we do and to our evolution because I did get my answer. And my answer now that I was in a graced state of consciousness was very clear. Like the divine consciousness told me, I don't want you in a hut, I want you with people. You have something to do with people. And therefore, I reevaluated my meaning, my dharma. Why am I here on this planet and what do I have to do? And ever since, I am doing these things at a new level, in a new way. So this is how things worked for me because I have this flaring temperament. I am very much based on emotions and energy and kundalini practice and those were the ones which gave the best results for me. What Kashmiri Shaivism calls bhavana, lots of bhavana, lots of kundalini rising, lots of shakti chalana, all those were the things which worked for me mostly and everything was subordinated to those. So that's why I said from the beginning my path and Sahajananda's path were different, although we are doing the same things. Like I wanted to get him to tell you that he did probably in a Sunday more than 200 Vajroli Mudras or something. I never did 200 Vajroli Mudras any Sunday or Monday or Wednesday or Thursday because my path was different. In me there was an intensity which was manifesting at different times and in other ways. So that is why every monk has his religion. Everybody has to find their way. And if you see us being different and yet doing things, it means you can also be different and yet do things. And you can achieve your own truth, which at the same does not need to be in opposition with my truth or with Sahajananda's truth, because there exists a universal truth which is synergic and we are making this meeting especially to open your hearts and to open your minds to see that there is diversity in oneness. 
in the center of the wheel of energies there is the hub which is Shiva and in this world we have a marvelous diversity and this diversity reflects the oneness of the creator the oneness of the divine consciousness and that I hope was an answer to Adam's question about what I did or how things work for me I want to ask uh, how to integrate the two main techniques we have Kridraya uh, and uh, Laya Yoga I personally experience that it's even possible to mix them to feel the tremor of the heart and the nada kind of vibrating together since they have the same source and that is why I say, I don't know what Sahajananda wants to answer to this, but that's why I say it is possible that this path is blending in you in a way in which it doesn't work in me or in which it doesn't work in him, but it works in you. It's true. Spanda and Nada have the same source ultimately. Everything is Shakti under her differentiated or undifferentiated form. Everything is Shiva because Shakti is Shiva and Shiva is Shakti. And that is why, of course, you can find oneness in everything. Both Spanda and Nada are two very valuable concepts in the Kashmiri Shaivism and in the metaphysics of Tantra. And that is why in this school we know. Don't think that it hasn't been told to me in the last couple of years or that Sahajananda didn't hear the same thing. Some people love the Hridaya meditations. Some people love the mantra meditations, the Laya Yoga. Some people don't even do Hridaya or Laya. They do other meditations which for them work. Like so there are people who love Bhavana meditations with music. There are people who... Everybody has to find their path. And I hope he and I, we are for the time being competent enough to be able to guide you through your questions and through your practice. Although it is possible that your practice may be slightly different from his or from mine. But I think we have together, when put together, we have all that experience which allows us to understand what's happening to a human being that does this yoga and to kind to know pretty clearly where you are in that picture, where you find yourself and what's the next step and what to do and how to be guided. So that's why I think uh, you don't have to imitate exactly, like do only this or do only that. It's find your own way. The methods are traditional and valuable. That's why they will work. Yes, actually, from an ultimate perspective, Nada and Spanda are the same thing. So it's the same vibration, it's the same reality. And Laya is a way of, of uh, dissolving the mind. And when the mind disappears, this background of consciousness is what remains. So it's not just uh, a void, or it's exactly this background, it's exactly who you really are. So Laya creates these conditions, the best conditions for the mind to dissolve itself. And what is revealed is the same reality. 
So yes, it can be, it can be combined like this. And if you feel inspired to do this, it's okay. Uh, what I recommend is, or in a more practical way, is to go beyond um, any specific effects of a mantra or another, because that nada is the background of all the mantras. And so it's not that you would do, let's say, uh, the meditation with mantra of uh, Ganesha or with mantra of this and that, and then uh, hoping. Still, these are these have a theme, these have a topic, and this is still something related with the mind. But when you go into that very nada, into that something which is beyond concepts, beyond name, beyond attributes, beyond the specific uh, God or energy, but towards that essential radiance of the spirit, then this is what it is. So I yes. still remember one day when we were walking on the beach on the shore of the Black Sea and we were talking about meditating on the crown chakra and so on and we used the funny Romanian expression where all these other small meditations, we call them gainari, we call them like, it's a very peculiar expression which means like chicken theft, petty theft, you know, like some small real thing and I, I remember when we were discovering indeed this centering this centering into the higher reality yes so indeed this specification should be done that not any kind of meditation is going towards the same ultimate reality there might be uh, just for example visualization or visualizations they can help any form of meditation definitely can help the mind, but always to understand that there is something beyond mind. And when, of course, the mind cannot grab or cannot understand what is beyond the mind, but the mind can understand that there is something beyond the mind. So the mind can understand that there is something beyond the mind. And you can understand this. And with this just stillness and surrender and in this way you can go beyond ego beyond just the technical aspects and then meditation becomes really deep okay um, first of all I would like to say that as a fresh student in the school um, I experienced um, some deep conflicts between two of these different teachings, especially in the last year. And I, at some points, I expressed these things to you as well, and you are aware of this. But uh, I would like to share now with the whole school that, um, as you said in the beginning, these are coming more from the ego. And as some spiritual experiences are elevating me, I feel that they go to the same direction. And now I feel I overcame this conflict. And actually, it's very lovely to combine these two teachings for my life at this point. And, but still, theoretically or practically, I have some like conflicts 
which I believe can still be overcome, but it might take too long. Maybe we don't have time for it tonight. So I have a long list of questions, <laughs> but I just want to go over like few things now. Uh, do uh, a lecture especially for for answering <laughs> your questions. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I um, think we'll meet again. I think we'll be together again in this formula, so it's not yeah. the and last time. Yeah, one of the key yeah. things that helped me to combine your uh, approaches was the actually the introduction to Kashmir Shaivism workshop. And Can you repeat? Thanks, Swami. And uh, so I, I saw there that the Kashmir Shaivism is so wide and it's so expanded that both of your teachings are included in that. And it's I feel the Agama Yoga is an attempt to restore the Kashmir Shaivist spirit. And so this is the positive side that I see. But there are also some blind points in my mind. For example, we don't know how the Kaula school was experiencing their life and their path. And how was the Spanda school, like Spanda was interacting with that. Like how in a theoretical map, where do these schools fit in? And coming to a more practical question about it, is uh, we know that sexuality has a very important role in Kaula school, but in Hiridaya retreats, for example, it is not okay to have sex even in a tantric way. So this kind of uh, brings kind of a deep conflict, I believe, in the practice. And yeah, I just want to Let's know. Let's start with one question at a time because you already put two, and each one of them has a different answer. Let's yeah. start with the first one and see also what Sahajananda has to say, and then we'll come to the one about sexuality. The one about Kaula school, and those were schools which existed a thousand, a thousand two hundred years ago. We don't really know in detail many of the things which they did in the daily life. And as Sahajananda said, we are here and now. We cannot rebuild the Kaula school. We can learn as much as possible from what they did, and we are the Kaula school. We are the 21st century Kaula school. We are doing those things. They do not exist. They are just a legend of the past. Whatever they did, they did, and we cannot remodel it identically, because that energy, that yuga in which they lived, that place in India where they were, that spirit is irrepeatable. It will not come up again. That's why we are different people in a different time, in different circumstances. We take their technology, we take much of their spirit, but we have to do it. We are the ones who are the Viras and the Shaktis. We are the ones who have to live in that way. So don't get too much attached because nobody really knows all the secrets of the Kaulas. They were a very secretive branch of Tantra and they did things in closed circles and we know some things and we don't know many things. But the point is that the spirit of yoga allows us to fill up the gaps, even if we don't fill it in the same way. Like if I import a technique from Chinese Taoism or from macrobiotics or from chiropractic, the Kaulas didn't do those, you know. We cannot say that in Kaula school somebody said have a rice diet, have a 10-day Oshava diet because you are really yin or something. We do it. So by doing that, we are something else automatically. We 
We, we cannot compare. So that's why we don't even try. Neither Sahajananda nor Ayn, we do not have any uh, agenda or dream of reviving some dead schools or something. We are simply doing, being here and now, and since we share this grace, this understanding, this realization, and since you find it worthy to be here and to share it with us, that's all that matters. No? Why are we doing all this thing in Thailand, of all places? No? It's like God has a sense of humor, we don't know. The universe has its own ways. We just have to be here and now and do our things. That's how I see the answer to this question, you know, with Spanda and Kaula and the others. If Sajananda wants to add, please. Yes, nevertheless, they were, uh, they might be a very powerful inspiration for us. And it's true. I don't see any conflict in this. It's a huge inspiration and it is beautiful to see how at least uh, actually I know because we, we, we spoke and there came some some uh, some confirmations for example an idea an inspiration uh, came and then we found it in the Shaivist books about uh, in the books about Shaivis so without knowing about uh, some ideas or about some uh, things we found Even them it was like yes it was like uh, recreating in a way and uh, this was a confirmation that yes this is uh, this is the way in which the things are but even the fact that there were mainly four powerful school which had different approaches is another proof proof that yes this kind of knowledge can be melted and a teacher like or a great master like Abhinava Gupta was able to synthesize Kaula, Krama, uh, Spanda, Pratyabhijna, all these schools, Trika, all these schools were, were integrated and he was a master of all of them and he even though apparently there might be contradictions but this is just a matter of methods which ultimately there are no contradictions so it was obvious because it was not that uh, Abhinava Gupta was uh, in a day uh, a Trika practitioner and uh, Monday Kula and uh, Tuesday Spanda all of them are, are uh, essentially aiming towards the same uh, reality and this is important to, to to see behind behind the differences behind the fact that they were this and they did this and why this well because it worked because all of them were aiming towards the same ultimate reality and um, just another idea if for example Abhinava Gupta could say well I practice and I pass through all this and I can say this is a low or this is something the trika is something for not so important much higher is Pratyabhijna don't lose your time with uh, this and that do only this and he didn't this so 
this is another argument for not having conflicts, but on the contrary, to believe that, yes, it can be. This diversity which goes and brings us towards unity, towards oneness. Yes. And in what concerns the second question, I hope you understood by now, and this is because I asked the same question of Sahajananda. I didn't want to ask him in public, no, because that's a pretty personal person. If he condones or does the practice of sexual tantra or something, that's after all his own personal orientation. But the point being, he's, when he does the Hridaya, he is enacting his own retreat in a cave. And when he was retreated in a cave 15 kilometers away from any human presence, he was not having a tantric partner with him. So he was not meeting with somebody, making love. The whole point was to have no human contact. So it is not about that if it is a tantric or it is not tantric. It's about being alone with God. And Sahajananda wants... We are talking since a couple of years of restarting, because we did some three, four years ago, of restarting dark room retreats where people go alone in the dark for three days, kaya kalpa, you know, for even longer periods of time. Precisely because of that, you are with nobody. It's just you and the universe. It's just you. So Sahajananda, he doesn't think necessarily that a tantric practice would spoil your meditation. But he feels like transmitting something which he himself has experienced. It's a direct transmission. And for this, he wants to, in, to enact exactly the same conditions. A cave-like retreat. That's why his conditions in his retreat are slightly different from other retreats which we do here in Agama. Because he has to convey something which comes through his own experience, through his own thing. And that, of course, I can understand that it produces questions like, what about this or what about that? Does Sahajananda think that actually people who do sexual tantric practice shouldn't do Hridaya meditations in their daily life? Or No, it's as far as I understood from him, his retreat is simply enacting his own discovery when he was in the loneliness and he was in the nature. And so I perfectly stand by his decision to do that. And I perfectly, you know, when he explained to me, I said, right, it is perfectly your right to do things in your way because that's the way the universe gave it to you. That's exactly the way you transmit it further to other people. So I hope I was quite explicit in, uh, in the retreats. And in general, I'm not against or the tantric practice, or I, it is not that I don't recommend. On the contrary. But uh, there are some methodological uh, reasons for doing the retreat in this way. And uh, there is a period, the retreat is a period in which indeed you are with God, and we are, you are in this practice of just being, going deeper into the heart. And for this, not speaking, not uh, making love and all these rules are, I consider, very of a very common sense uh, uh, rules. 
On the other hand, I said that I did. I said in some situations, not in each retreat, it's not a topic of the retreat, but I said in some uh, situations that I did retreats in couple, and I did my tuna rituals in a cave each day. And I did Kayakalpa retreat in darkness in couple. So, yes, this can be, and this can be a, a, a beautiful experience, but it's something totally different. And maybe if God wants, sometimes this will happen, even here. People will ask you to do my tuna retreats now. <laughs> I hope you realize. <laughs> I'm not, uh, I'm, I, I mean, I don't uh, say no or it might be, and I think it's very inspiring. So it is not that I don't c consider this uh, tantric practice important, but in the retreat, in the Hidaya retreat, I follow the same rules. I will never go, and because I heard there are, because here it is not like in an ashram, and some people make exceptions, considering that, well, it's okay to speak or it's okay to uh, break some rules or... No, I'm... Of course, I have to speak because I keep lectures, but otherwise, I keep these this, uh, rules. Because I know this is a way of, of building up, because it's, it is a synergy. All these conditions, all these elements, help us in going deeper, in going deeper. So if you come with a different energy in those moments, it's a different approach. It's a different approach. In a Maituna retreat, the things are different. But if you mix the things, it's not, it's not what will uh, bring the proper results. So that's why I'm saying we should understand this and uh, yes it is very good to have some pauses you know it's a cycle always it's a matter of cycles everywhere it's a period of activity it's a period of pause as well it's it's very good creates a detachment as well it is very good if you have more on your list Okay, let's see if somebody else has. If, but again, if you feel that there is an urgent one which you want to ask, don't hold back. So I'm sure a lot of us are feeling really inspired right now after hearing about the two of your individual practice. Um, and of course, my question is not um, possible to do on every day, but I, I had the desire to ask you if you could plan a perfect day of practice, which included... Um, Kundalini yoga or Mahatha yoga practice, meditation and um, tantric sexuality, if you could create, and karma yoga even also. Um, just, just if you had 24 hours in a day, the two of you could together come up with an ideal layout. I would love to hear it. We'd have to plan it a little <laughs> bit, haggle a little bit about Put more of this, put less of that. <laughs> there are two people with two different Okay, so let's hear ah, both. So we need <laughs> one to, of each. first of all, <laughs> consult. 
to reach a synergy. I always respect the tradition, and I think that the people who made the tradition knew the human being very well. And I remember that in Shiva Samhita, the amounts of practice are given as two hours, small practice, four hours per day, average practice, eight hours per day, tough practice, high-level practice. Therefore, it depends very much on the aspiration, because if I would recommend the eight-hour-per-day practice, then the people whose aspiration is not flaring forth big enough in that moment, they will just make empty willpower effort, and in one month they will feel like going to the shopping mall or running away or, you know, escaping in some way, because somehow they are not doing what they are cut for. They are just uh, going a little bit artificial. That's why I would be able to go into programs of spiritual life which go for a person of small aspiration, for a person of medium aspiration, and for a person of frantic aspiration. Then I would be able to dose it better. Otherwise, I would of course say, oh, do yoga from morning till evening. When you wake up in the morning, do the self-suggestion of the morning, recall your dreams, write down this, then get out of the bed, do the morning kriyas, then come back and do the first meditation and consecration of the day. And, this, and I could describe like this a sadhana which goes from morning till evening. And even in the night you do yoga of the lucid dreaming. But Milarepa was doing yoga like that because he was completely scared that he would go to hell because he killed 35 people and he was having an aspiration which was tremendous and he was ready to do that. We have people, I at least that's my approach to it, I have learned to be wiser in time because of course I would like to see a lot of people doing what Milarepa did but I don't see much of that and therefore if you raise the standards this much you will have people who have enough aspiration for two hours of yoga per day and you are going to di disappoint them you are going to discourage them by telling them if you don't do eight you are no good but actually even two is good no compared to the billions of people out there who do nothing for their spiritual development if any one of you finds resourcefulness to do at least two hours of spiritual practice per day, that is enormous. You are a sadhaka. You are a spiritual practitioner. You are doing some sadhana. And that, that is why we can give many idealistic models. But Swami Shivananda, for example, he didn't give a model. He simply gave a spiritual diary. He gave you a formulary in which he says, how many minutes of asanas did you do today? You write. How many minutes of pranayama you did today? You write. How many minutes of meditation? How many minutes of svadhyaya, of self-study you did? How many minutes of karma yoga? It's up to you to fill up those. He doesn't give recommendations. He simply says, do it according to your heart. Because if you try to live in the shoes of the person that you are not, you will break after a while. I have seen people doing tremendous yoga effort and then running and doing stupid things. And I know it from my own soul because I also tried to do what Milarepa did and what we were having. You understand from Sahajananda that we are having this spirit. He 
told me, no, you, he took an initiation, and then you told me after I took that initiation, how many hours you meditated non-stop? 18 hours. He, he took an initiation, and afterwards he sat and did that meditation for 18 hours, non-stop. No? Like, we love these stories. That's the kind, that's the spirit. No, but sometimes you can, sometimes you cannot. And I myself, sometimes not being able to do what Milarepa did, I considered myself the last sinner, the most wretched and miserable spiritual person on this planet, hopeless. No, like, why? Because I am a perfectionistic Virgo somewhere inside, and I can criticize myself endlessly. I can blame myself for every single thing that I didn't do. And when you know so much yoga as even you do, then you can do yoga from morning till evening, and therefore you can always blame yourself that you haven't done something today. But you have also to learn to love yourself. When you love yourself, then you understand the divine nature of the human being in another way. Because it's not how I did my eight hours of yoga so God can love me. I deserve to be loved because I did my duty, I'm a good boy, I did my yoga practice. That's how I thought when I was young. And there, were, there came a day where I broke into pieces, like made of porcelain. I just fell into pieces because I couldn't do that every day, and therefore I felt that I was unworthy and a sinner, and God didn't love me, and I was persecuting myself, I was blaming myself. That's why it's good to have an idea that I want to do this, but you constantly have to see if it makes you happy, if it is your path, if indeed you thrive with it, or if you are trying to lie to yourself. I remember I spoke last summer with a man that both Sahajananda and I knows, Christy Dumitru. And I'm, this man has been doing yoga, I taught him yoga first in the communist times, in 1986 or 7 or 8, I taught him yoga. So it's a man who has been doing yoga for 20-something years. And last year, he decided to make a child with his wife, who had been also doing yoga for 10 years. And they, he's sexually continent, and they simply made a consecration and she got pregnant from the first try. And when I saw him, she was pregnant in five months or something, and he was radiant with joy. Although he is four years older than me, he looked ten years younger than me, and he looked shining. And he said, I started living again. I realize now that I was just waiting for death to come. That's what my life was. I was living in the same apartment with my wife, and I was waiting for my death to come. I was a yogi. This shows obviously that this man was living in somebody else's shoes. He didn't know himself. He didn't realize what his heart was about, what he was built for. He didn't have maybe the humbleness to understand what he was cut for, and that he was not the next Milarepa. But maybe his child is going to be the next Milarepa. From such parents, I expect that an exceptional child will come. Maybe that's his real dharma. That's why we have to be open. Some people like Sahajananda will go in caves. Because 
they have the stamina for this. They have the call for this. Some people will make an exceptional child. Some people will make an amazing karma yoga. Some people will do other forms of spiritual practice. That's why it's very, your question is very difficult because I don't think that even if Sahajananda and I talk together for a few hours, can we come up with an actual program? Even if we put it on three levels, the program, the easy program, the middle program, and the hardcore program, still, I don't think we'll be able to make everybody happy with it. So, live, live your spirituality out. Don't, do not forget why you are born in this world. Do not forget why you are here in Kopangan. No, they are coming people to do yoga and all day long they have potlucks and socializing. And they say, I didn't have time to do my yoga yesterday. They're like, what the heck are you doing in Kopangan? Kopangan is somewhere in the middle of nowhere. It's the end of the world. It's an island in the Indian Ocean or whatever this ocean is. It's like, what are you doing here? No, you came here to do yoga. No, it's like there are no cinema halls and no supermarket malls, hypermarkets, or something like. What do you do here? That's why I say, find find this in your heart, find your own rhythm in your heart, and make in such a way that you don't feel guilty, that you don't. I'm saying this specially to you because I know you are a Virgo, and at least I understand Virgos. I went through the hell of that. I whipped myself for years, not understanding really, because my teacher was incapable to teach me this. He was in his own world, and I was incapable to get the proper feedback, like how should I deal with myself? What, what is the proper, wise attitude towards yourself? That's why the first thing to learn is to love yourself, because you are God. The kingdom of heaven is in your own heart, love that, and from that all the good things derive. Maybe you want to add something in your understanding? Well, I think you, you answered, I have the same vision, just to point the fact that uh, this question, even the question itself is, uh, I would say, uh, not the proper approach, at least the approach which I recommend. Like, uh, I did uh, two hours of karma yoga now, today I did uh, two hours of hatha yoga, two hours, and so I'm a, a virtuous, uh, virtuous people, person. No, I, I don't consider that this is, uh, and not also, not doing this mechanically. Each day I have this schedule, so I will keep it two hours of karma yoga, two hours of hatha yoga. It's not... It's not the, the, at least not the spirit of Hridaya Yoga. Uh, even though to have a, um, a daily sadhana is important, still this idea that you will gain out of this grabbing techniques, doing a practice or another, avoiding this, uh, as Swami said, as this sinner, not to be a sinner or to be a very special person is not the attitude. Again, is not the attitude in, in yoga. Uh, it is more about this intuition, this inspiration. Okay, you, you, you understand the need of doing a sadhana, of doing a practice, but to, to try, even to try to think 
what would be my perfect day each day following the same program it is like ignoring this flux of life it's like ignoring the dynamism of, of life itself the fact that each day can bring you special moments special moments I, I re remember um, <laughs> Now came a, an idea in uh, a scientist said uh, uh, a professor was asking, they were doing research and uh, a professor was asking his uh, assistant what is his schedule? And uh, this, his assistant had started to say, well, I write this and I do this till this hour, till this hour, from this hour to this hour. And was a very, very busy uh, schedule. And in the end, uh, the, the professor, who was a, a genius, uh, said, but you don't stay to, to meditate, to think. You don't, uh, what are you doing here? It's not like letting time for, for thinking. <laughs> so you, you should let this, this magical things to happen. If you have this schedule and you know, Half an hour karma yoga should start, or uh, uh, the practice of uh, hatha yoga should start. You cannot afford to have a samadhi <laughs> to surrender because it's the schedule. You know, it's the time. It's you cannot miss the time. So that's why this freshness is more important. So again, this freshness is more important than than uh, this practice. So, yes, I also recommend a sadhana, but not with this obsession that this is uh, the solution and this is what you have to do. The sadhana, sadhana is a mean. The sadhana is a path, is a, a, a tool, but is not the ultimate. Not, not, don't miss this and don't consider that don't give an absolute value to the to your sadhana and when you don't do this absolute value then you can see in each and every technique or um, practice that you do uh, the, the magic the beauty the spirit so uh, as uh, Rumi said about his uh, teacher and uh, friend Shams, he said, Shams, his eyes were never oriented towards something without rending that thing eternal. So it is like this in your practice. You come with this approach. This body becomes eternal in Hatha Yoga. Your in your meditation, you touch the spirit or you are touched by the spirit and then again this is something divine you practice hatha karma yoga again this is something divine and being aware of this is much more important than to keep this schedule in this way and when this happens you have the inspiration to do even more which comes not because you have a schedule or because you have you are afraid of not being a sinful person but because it comes from this very understanding from
from this stillness which is in you. This stillness, paradoxically, this stillness inspires you to act and to act in this harmonious way. And this can happen and this can go deeper and deeper. And even this idea, Swami Vivekananda, the disciple, <laughs> the other, <laughs> Swami Vivekananda, said in a very beautiful way about sin, you know, this concept of sin in, in Christianity. And he said, for us in Hinduism, there is no sin, just the ignorance of not seeing yourself as the oneness. So even in a very subtle way, he said that this idea of sin is a sin, is an ignorance, actually. Because thinking that you are a sinner, you are just separated from this oneness. And this is a proof of ignorance. So he said, for us, there is not this idea of sin, but there is this idea of ignorance, which make you to think that you are limited and that you are not this oneness. So, if you start with this idea that there is a sin, that there you are a sinner, that might be you, if you will not do this and that, this is a sin, then of course, this is ignorance. If you start with this idea that the practice is, uh, should be done in this and that, again, it is ignorance. Perhaps we should stop for tonight. It's over 11 o'clock. If there will be requests, if you have those requests, please give them to the teaching department, to the registration people, to the general manager. We will make all the possible efforts to be both of us with you and to answer your questions comparatively in a Agama, Hridaya combined way so that you see more and more that we follow a path of oneness indeed and that at the higher end there is just one samadhi, one cosmic consciousness, one spanda, one reality and the same spiritual goals are enlivening Sahajananda and I in this quest which we have. Namaste to all of you. Thank you. Thank you for your presence and patience tonight. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.